As we come to this uh, chapter, Genesis chapter 24, we come, um, in a sense, to a, a transition in the narrative. The book of Genesis really divides into two sections, as you guys know. Um, the first section uh, deals with four great events. It begins with the creation, and then it moves into the fall, and then from there into the flood, and then from there into the Tower of Babel, which kind of explains uh, where the nations came from and where people were divided. And so four great events that really encapsulate the first section of the book of Genesis. The second section, which is the larger section in terms of volume of the book, concerns or um, centers around four lives. The life of Abraham, then his son Isaac, and then uh, his son Jacob, and then his son Joseph, and kind of what unfolds in the 12 tribes, which would ultimately become the nation of Israel. And as we come into chapter 24, we're in the midst of a transition between Abraham, who was the first, the patriarch, the first of those four persons, into now his son Isaac, and how God will continue the promise and begin to you know, further unfold his plan of developing this nation of Israel. And so it's really a time of transition. And as we look at this chapter, there's really two layers for us to observe. First of all, there's just the, uh, the plain historical relevance of what's in the text. There's things here for us to learn. There are principles, things about God, things about our life in Christ that are laid out before us here, very insightful to help us. So there's relevance in just the text, the history of what took place. But there's also a prophetic shadow that we've been looking at that has been kind of continuing from chapter 22 and then into 23 that we looked at last time. And then it concludes at the end of 24. And God just did this amazing thing and that he took the, the, the history of, you know, Abraham offering his son Isaac and then the burial of Sarah, and now the gathering or finding of a bride for the son, Isaac, and God in it, in this way that only God can, put his fingerprint on the pages of the text in such a way that we would be able to see all of redemption's story kind of played out in a kind of a drama, a love story, in these three chapters. And so there's kind of a prophetic shadowing that we see in these, these chapters, and so we'll look at these as we go through uh, the chapter. There's kind of a seeing of all of these layers. And so as we begin in chapter 1, I'm sorry, verse 1 of chapter 24, we see this, the setting of the stage for this segment of Abraham's life now as he prepares to pass the torch onto his son Isaac. It says in verse 1, it says that Abraham was old and well stricken in age. You know, that means that not only was he old, um, but his oldness had stricken him. <laughs> You'd look at his face and you would say, that man has been hit in the face with the old stick. You know, you could see that he was wearing his age. Now, he's going to live for a little while longer, but he is recognizing at this stage of things that God has left him behind and taken Sarah to heaven. And he realizes in that, that in that he is still on earth, there is something left yet for him to do. And so realizing his own mortality, and yet also the opportunity that God laid before him, he realizes what it is that God still wants him to do before it is that he'll be taken to heaven. And so it says that he was old and well stricken in age, and it says that the Lord had blessed Abraham in all things. 
Now, what an amazing thing to have spoken by the Holy Spirit of your life as you come to that time when there's uh, a lot more behind you than there is still yet in front of you. For God to be able to look at your life and to be able to say, I have blessed that life in all things, in every way that is possible to bless a life, that life has been blessed. And I believe that's the heart of God for every one of us, that he wants all of us to come to that place at the end of our days where he can look at it and say, I was able to bless that life. And that's the heart of our Father. That's what he wants to do. He wants to bless his people. I shared uh, last week in our study that, you know, how I tell my kids to live life backwards. Start with a goal and then realize what you need to do to accomplish that goal and then take steps from there. Well, this is a real good goal. If you want to say, what is my life on earth going to consist of? Let it be that at the end of it, it can be said by the Holy Spirit that your life was blessed in all things. And if you, like Abraham, choose to walk by faith and not by sight, and in obedience and not in rebellion, then you too will have that testimony of God at the end of your life. Well, realizing now that God has something for him, it tells us in verse 2, it says that Abraham said unto his eldest servant of his house that ruled over all he had, he said, put, I pray thee, your hand under my thigh. And so Abraham calls the chief servant of his house. We are not here told who it is, but in chapter 15, we're told that his chief servant was Eliezer, a man who was from the region of Damascus, a man whose name means God is my help, which will come into the story later on as we shall see. We're told he's the eldest servant and that Abraham calls him to himself and tells him to put his hand under his thigh. And what he's going to do is he's going to call upon this servant to make an oath. And the hand under the thigh was a cultural thing in those days, basically something that they would do that was binding between Abraham now and this man, that this oath that he takes, that he will fulfill it, that he'll do what he's being asked to do. And so Abraham goes on in verse 3, and he says, And I will make you swear or promise by the Lord, the God of heaven, and the God of earth, that you, and here's what he wants him to do, here's the mission, shall not take a wife unto my son of the daughters of the Canaanites among whom I dwell, but you shall go unto my country and to my kindred and take a wife unto my son Isaac. And so Abraham, realizing that what God has for him yet now to do is to arrange a marriage, to find a bride for his son, who at this point is still unmarried, and he desperately does not want Isaac to be marrying among the Canaanite women. He sees something in the culture. He sees something that will be a detriment to the future. Or he hears something from God that this is not what God wants. And so he makes this servant promise that in the finding of a wife for Isaac, that it will not be among the daughters of the Canaanites, but rather it will be someone from his kindred, his extended family, that is living about 400 miles to the north in the area of Mesopotamia, in the area of Paddan Aram. And so he says um, this oath to him, and the servant replies in verse 5, uh, seeing kind of a flaw in what it is that Abraham's asking him to do, he says, the servant, he says, peradventure, perhaps the woman will not be willing to follow me unto this land. 
Must I then needs bring your son again unto the land from whence you came? In other words, you're asking me to travel 400 miles up into the northern territory to find this woman, but you don't want me to bring your son Isaac with me? I mean, wouldn't that be a practical uh, move on things? If you want him to meet somebody, then shouldn't he be present in the whole thing? I mean, this is kind of a flawed plan on things. Abraham, you want me to do it? Do you want me to bring your son with you? I don't want to make two trips. And so Abraham said unto him, Beware, and he's emphatic here, that you bring not my son thither again. The Lord God of heaven, which took me from my father's house and from the land of my kindred, and which spoke unto me, and that swear unto me, saying, Unto thy seed will I give this land. He will send his angel before you, and you shall take a wife unto my son from there. And if the woman will not be willing to follow you, then you shall be clear from this my oath, only bring not my son thither again. And the servant put his hand under the thigh of Abraham, his master, and swear to him concerning that matter. Now, this is an amazing uh, a thing that Abraham is asking of this servant. I mean, if you put yourself for just a moment in the shoes of this servant, this is the kind of thing that makes you want to quit your job. Right? I mean, he's, he's, he's the oldest servant, so he's getting on in years now. And, and certainly, Abraham's been good to him. He loves Abraham. Uh, he's come to know Abraham's God, as we're going to see. But what Abraham is asking him to do here is something that is exceedingly difficult and borderline on the impossible, if not at least unreasonable. You want me to go to a place and find a woman that might not even exist and then convince her to come back here and marry a man who couldn't come with me <laughs> that she can't see, and, and, and you, want me to, you want me to bring her back, you know, after this whole thing, and, and yet your son can't go. That's like Abraham asking his servant, or, or just someone else asking their servant, I want you to travel 400 miles, and I want you to buy a custom motor vehicle that might exist in that place, and I don't want you to take any money with you. But God is going to provide, and he's going to move upon the heart of the person who has this, this item, and they're just going to release it. And it's just going to show up here when you come back. 400 miles, pack your things, you're leaving in the morning. And, oh, by the way, you're going on camelback. <laughs> Take some water you know, across the desert. This is an amazing thing that Abraham is asking here of the servant. But yet we see that the servant agrees and that the servant goes, and with absolute clarity, Abraham lays out what he wants, and the servant uh, packs his things and begins to go. Now, why is it that God, I'm sorry, that Abraham wouldn't want Isaac to go with the servant? I don't think it's because Isaac's not the marrying type, and that that would be a deal breaker. <laughs> you know, I, I don't know what it is. We will see that there's a prophetic reason. There's a spiritual reason and application of this that we'll see later on. But what I do find amazing in this passage and worthy of, of our consideration as we just kind of look at, uh, you know, this in terms of the spiritual life that you and I live is that Isaac has absolutely no idea that any of this is going on. And yet God, in his way of orchestrating and bringing about a, a, a marriage, a, a bride, a spouse into his life, God is bringing restrictions into how things are done. 
And, and it could be that Abraham knows that if Isaac goes into that area, that he'll be tempted to stay there. It's probably a little bit more advanced. There's maybe a little bit more opportunity for him. Certainly there's more family and familiarity. And Abraham knows that the future of the promise is in Canaan. And he doesn't want to risk, for the sake of the promise in the future, having Isaac become attached to the region up there in the north. And so he says he's not to go there. And for you and I, it speaks to the fact that sometimes God lays restrictions upon opportunities that you and I might think we want or that we might think would be good for us because he sees the future and he knows that those opportunities would be a detriment to his plan for us or for our kids and future generations. And part of walking by faith, which is what we're called to do, is realizing that everything that happens in our life, whether it be an open door or a closed door, an opportunity or a restriction, that all of those things are authored by God according to His perfect knowledge and His perfect wisdom. And faith receives those things as they are, knowing that God knows best. Our vanishing point is way too close in front of our face to be able to figure out how a is going to affect B, which is we'll roll into C and sometime down. And God sees every generation for 50 generations out from where we are right now. And sometimes small things, small decisions, small seeds that are sown into our heart and in our life affect things way down the line. And so God sometimes closes doors. And Isaac was not able, he wasn't allowed to go. Well, the servant packs his things and he gets ready to go. And it tells us there in verse 10, it says that the servant now took 10 camels of the camels of his master and he departed. For all the goods of his master were in his hand and he arose and went to Mesopotamia unto the city of Nahor. Now he knows he's going to need to prove that if this woman will come with him that she will be well cared for and that she's not coming into destitution or poverty. And so having charge over all of the accounts of Abraham... He loads 10 camels with things that he'll need to show that she will be in good hands. And then it tells us that he went to the city of Nahor. Now we'll find out a few chapters from now that this city of Nahor is about 400 miles due north of where they're living in Canaan, an area that will be called then Paddan Aram, or Haran, where Abraham had come out of previously. And it says that he made his camels to kneel down outside the city by a well of water at the time of the evening, even the time that women go out to draw water. That was customary all the way throughout the Bible, that that would be something that the, the, the women of the house would do at that time of the night. They would go out with their pitchers to the well and they would gather for the needs uh, of the house. And it says that that servant coming now to that well, verse 12, it says that he said, and so here's his prayer. He said, O Lord, God of my master Abraham, I pray thee, send me good speed this day and show kindness unto my master Abraham. Behold, I stand here by the well of water and the daughters of the men of the city come out to draw water. And let it come to pass that the damsel to whom I shall say, let down your pitcher, I pray thee, that I may drink. And she shall say, drink, and I will give thy camels drink also. Let the same be she that thou hast appointed for thy servant Isaac, and thereby shall I know that you have showed kindness unto my master. 
Now, this is a remarkable prayer that's being offered by this servant of Abraham to God concerning the mission that he has now been sent on. And really, it's the second time in the book of Genesis that we see prayer being offered to God. The first time was back in Genesis 18 when Abraham was interceding for Lot. And it was a prayer of intercession, praying for someone else. But now what we have is we have a man praying for the prospering of his mission. It's a personal need or a prayer of supplication, asking God for something. And I'm amazed by the content of it and also the simplicity. It tells us, first of all, in this prayer that he simply addresses who he's speaking to. God. God of my master Abraham. And so he calls upon him. He prays to him, the Lord, the God of my master Abraham. And then secondarily, he says, show me good speed this day and kindness unto my master Abraham. He addresses his mission. So first he addresses his God. Then he addresses his mission, just subtly. And God already knows. He doesn't have to lay out every detail. Well, you know, God, that Abraham said this, and then I said this, and now I'm doing this and this. He doesn't have to do all that. He just says, Lord, remember Abraham and show kindness concerning this mission that I'm on. Then thirdly, what he does in verse 13 is that he kind of brings to God's attention the fact that he is walking in action towards an answer. Notice what he says. He says, Behold, I stand here by this well, and the daughters of the men of the city come out to draw water. In other words, God, I'm not asking you to do something wherein I have no skin in the game. I've come 400 miles out of obedience in this mission, and here I am in a place expectant and ready for the answer. And I think that's an important thing, ingredient in our walking with God and in our seeking of God. Sometimes our prayers divorce ourselves from involvement in the activities. We want God to just do everything. God just do all this and fulfill it. And then I'll know and I'll walk in it after the fact. But part of walking by faith and praying by faith is that we're walking in tandem with God, and at the same time we're praying for something, knowing that we need Him to do it, we're taking the steps that He's leading us to take and seeing the thing fulfilled. He says, Lord, I've come this way. I'm standing by this well of water. So He's got skin in the game. And then finally, fourthly, He asks God for a supernatural answer, a miracle in a sense, as He kind of lays out a fleece-like prayer before God. He says, Lord, let it come to pass that the woman to whom I say, let down your pitcher so that I could have some water. And she says, not only, yes, you can have some water, but I will also draw water for all ten of your camels. Then let her be the one that you have chosen and appointed for your servant Isaac. Now that's an amazing prayer. That's kind of a long shot, isn't it? I mean, think about how much water one camel will drink, having just traveled 400 miles across the desert. And now he's saying that this woman's just going to offer of her own will to draw enough water out of a well to satisfy 10 camels? That's an amazing thing. Why is it that he would ask something so incredible, so big? It's not a small thing. Well, just for us to consider, I think, first of all, I think he wanted to be absolutely sure that the woman that he would choose would be from the Lord. And so he made it just outrageous enough that he would be absolutely sure that anyone crazy enough to water ten camels, that's got to be God. He made it so that there was no way he would not know that God was answering his prayer. I think also on a practical level, 
This servant understood that it's no small thing to be a part of Abraham's family. I mean, just consider who Abraham was and the great company of people. He's already in the process of becoming a nation, just in servants and in responsibilities and things that are going on in his town and village where he's living. And certainly everyone there was working extremely diligently. And he knew that to be in that environment, it has to be a certain type of person. Perhaps he also knew the type of man that Isaac was and that he would need a woman of this kind of character and this kind of temperament. And he wanted to do a good job. I mean, think about what he's doing. He has the task of choosing his boss's son's wife. I mean, put yourself in those shoes. You have to choose a wife for your boss's son. You don't want to screw that up, right? That could seriously hinder your future. You know, here she is, and she's got a neck tattoo, and, you know, she just got out of prison or something. And, I mean, nothing wrong with any of that. But I'm certain that this servant didn't want to be bringing her back, you know, in that way. It could also be that he's giving himself a way out. What woman in her right mind is ever going to agree to this thing, and I'll at least be able to go back and say, I tried, I even prayed. And there was no one that was willing to marry Isaac under the terms, you know, not seeing him first. Well, he prays this prayer. It's simple. It's specific. It's out of diligence. And it tells us there in verse 15 that it came to pass that before he was done speaking, that behold, Rebekah came out, who was born to Bethuel, the son of Milcah, the wife of Nahor, Abraham's brother, so Abraham's grandniece, with her pitcher upon her shoulder. And the damsel was very fair to look upon, a virgin, neither had she known any man, and she went down to the well and filled her pitcher and came up. And the servant ran to meet her and said, Let me, I pray thee, drink a little water from your pitcher. And she said, Drink, my lord. And she hasted and let down her pitcher upon her hand and gave him a drink. And when she had done giving him drink, she said, I will draw water for your camels also until they have done drinking. And so she hasted and emptied her pitcher into the trough and ran again unto the well to draw water and drew for all his camels. Now, this is an amazing thing that this woman begins to do in the whole thing. Now, Interesting. I mean, I, I was thinking about this. What in the world caused this to happen? I mean, aside from the Spirit of God, we know that God has His hand in this, as we're going to see. But it tells us when she went to the well, it says that she went down with her pitcher and she came back up. And most likely, however and wherever this well was situated in the center of this town, it wasn't practical for this servant to be able to bring his camels right down to the well in order that the water might be drawn right there probably a descending set of stairs or some terrain wherein it wasn't possible for the camels to go down. And as she sees this man, who doesn't even have a pitcher himself in order for him to drink water, and she sees the condition that she's in, she realizes something's got to be done for these camels. And so what it reveals is that this woman is perceptive. She's also very kind, and she's fiercely hospitable. And the servant sees that, perhaps part of the reason he prayed for someone that would be just like this, looking for that kind of a character in the woman. And so it says in verse 21, his response now as he watches. It says, And the man, wondering at her, held his peace, 
to see whether the Lord had made his journey prosperous or not. And it came to pass, as the camels had finished drinking, that the man took a golden earring of half shekel weight and two bracelets for her hands of ten shekels weight of gold. I'm impressed by this servant. Because he doesn't see her water eight camels or nine and a half camels and say, all right, okay, you don't have to do that anymore. I see you're breaking a serious sweat. This is the most intense CrossFit exercise you've ever done. I know you're training for a Spartan, but you don't have to. No, he didn't do that. He said, okay, God, if I have asked you for a sign, then I'm going to wait and I'm going to see to it that what I asked for is completely filled, fulfilled before I just assume that this is the answer to the prayer. It says that he's wondering. His jaw is dropping further and further open as he's watching to see if she's going to complete this task that she's begun. And as she finished, he said, look, I can't take this for nothing. This is a lot of work. And he kind of, out of just pure kindness, gives her... Uh, a nose ring, and then two bracelets for her um, to wear on the whole thing. And then he said, whose daughter are you? And we'll get into that in just a minute. But what we see in this passage here, in this interaction, this interchange between the servant and Rebecca, is an amazing biblical insight or method of searching for or seeking out a spouse. When you're in that time of life, when you're looking for a spouse. What do we see here in this that can give us insight in making a wise decision in that most important of decisions that we make in our life of who we're going to spend our life with and partner up with? A couple of things just to consider from the passage. First of all, when you're looking for a wife, or maybe you're even just counseling one of your kids uh, who's looking for a wife, is that you should entrust it to the Father and believe that the angel is dispatched. Entrust the matter to the Father and believe that the angel is dispatched. Isaac had no idea that any of this was going on behind the scenes. Neither did Rebecca. And yet we know that both of them had a desire to be married. And yet in the unseen place, in the unseen way, things were happening behind the scenes that were orchestrating their arrangement and their marriage. And I think it's important for you and I to consider that God is interested in who we spend our life with. And even when we're not aware of it, he's working behind the scenes to arrange the meeting and to prepare our character for when that day will ultimately come. We see it with Adam and Eve. God made Adam aware of his need before he brought the spouse to him. There was a whole thing God was doing. We see that all throughout the Bible. And God is faithful to do that. He's working behind the scenes. So if you're waiting, wait and trust that God is already in it. He's already working through it. The second thing that we see here is that the well is a good place to look. The well is a good place to look. In the Bible, the well speaks of the place of spiritual refreshment, the place of spiritual satisfaction. That's what it is spiritually. And it's amazing when you search the scriptures, how many met one another, how many arrangements were made at the well. This is the first one. You know, where a bride is found for Isaac at the well, the place of spiritual arrangement. It's going to happen later on again with Jacob. Jacob is going to meet Rachel, his love, at the well, the place where the water is given forth. Moses is going to meet his wife at the well, the place of spiritual enrichment and satisfaction. We're going to see that the Samaritan woman in John chapter 4, she met the love of her life, Jesus, at a well when she was there inquiring and Jesus was coming after her. And so a great place. You say, well, what is the well? What do you mean? 
church. It's a great place to be around spiritual things and to be around spiritual people. To find the type of person that's going to complete you in the Lord. We see it in the Bible. It's a great place to be. Now, you know, there's a lot of other places that this servant could have gone looking for a bride, right? He might have thought to himself, well, if I'm going to find a woman who's desperate, <laughs> right? I mean, it's going to take a desperate woman to fulfill this. He could have gone anywhere. I'm certain that Haran had a red light district. I mean, we're talking Babylon here, right? And yet, no, he went to the well and he didn't compromise. And it's so important when you're searching for that person in your life that you look for the right type of person and not just any person and hope that you'll be able to change them somehow into making them the kind of person you want them to be. The truth about human nature is this, is that whatever a person is in their heart of hearts before they're married, their values, their ideals, their habits, the things that they are, the things that they give themselves to, if they're even a little bit that before they're married, they're going to be a lot a bit that after they're married. Because what we are is what we are. And if you look for a person in a place that is not spiritual, and you find a person who's not spiritual, that's what you're going to get beyond what you had imagined. Look at the well. Number three, pray specifically and expectantly for your spouse. Number four, know what you want and know what you need. It's interesting that all of the women of the city came out to draw water, right? And he didn't just put up a sign and say, got water, you know, need in need of water, will work for water. And, you know, he didn't do that and just kind of, no, he singled out one that had the things that he was looking for. She was beautiful, number one. She was pure, number two. She was a virgin, had never been with a man. And somehow culturally he was able to recognize that by what she was wearing or maybe not wearing, we don't know but he knew that she was a virgin. And number three, she was responsible. And when he saw the qualities that he was looking for, he ran to meet the woman. And he said, hey, would you? And there was an interaction between the two. And I think it's important to know what it is that you're looking for in a spouse and then be proactive as the Lord leads. Number five, wait until you know with finality. Right? Again, he didn't interject and say, good enough, I know that you're the one. He waited until he was sure. Listen, marriage is forever. When you choose a spouse, you walk down the aisle and you say, I do, you're making a vow and a covenant before God. And he takes that very seriously. You read the Bible about vows and what God says about keeping the vows that you make before him. And so you don't want to do that unadvisedly or in an expedited way just to get it done. No, you carefully make sure, God, is this of you? And then you walk with it. You know, it's, um, I was talk, sharing with someone. Someone was asking me about how I met my wife. And I was kind of sharing the story. And I won't share that whole story here. But when we got engaged, we really wanted God's will. And neither one of us wanted to uh, walk into something that was going to be a, a train wreck or a disaster in our future. And so we prayed. And we, we sat down when we got engaged. And we asked God. And this was our prayer. We said, God... We believe that you're not going to let us blindly walk into something that will be a train wreck in our future. And so we're asking, Lord, that as we walk into engagement, that you would either blow the doors wide open or close them firmly in front of us so that we would know for sure that we're either going in your will or that we're walking outside of your will. And amazingly, God answered that prayer. I mean, he just blew the doors so wide open 
that when we walked down the aisle, it was impossible for either one of us to have even a shred of doubt as to whether or not we were doing the right thing for our future. And, and, and that's been great for our marriage, to never question that. Well, did I really marry the right person? And here's why that's important. Because the bad times, the sickness, the poorer, you know, all those parts of the vows, those things happen, right? <laughs> and you want to be sure, and so make sure. And then number six, make sure you are ready and equipped for someone else. Notice that the servant, he immediately gave her an earring, he gave her bracelets. She could see that she was going to be well prepared or well cared for, that he was prepared for marriage. And, and part of getting married to someone isn't just making sure that they're right for us, but making sure that we're right for them. And so, Lord, are you working in my life? Am I the type of person that that person needs for their future and for their good? And so let God continue to change you while you're waiting. And then number seven, I love this. It's verse uh, 25 and onward. Or actually, let's, we're back in verse 23. I want you to see this. It says that he said, whose daughter are you? Tell me, I pray thee, is there room in your father's house for us to lodge in? The last piece of the puzzle is, is she of the right family? She watered the camels, but is she of Abraham's kindred? And she said unto him, I am the daughter of Bethuel, the son of Milcah, which she bore to Nahor. And she said moreover unto him, We have both straw and provender enough and room to lodge in. And it says that the man bowed down his head and he worshipped the Lord. And he said, Blessed be the Lord, God of my master Abraham, who has not left destitute my master of his mercy and his truth. I... Being in the way, the Lord led me to the house of my master's brethren. So he realizes at this point that God has fully answered his prayer, fully met the desire of Abraham, his servant, and prospered the mission that he has set forth on. And I love his response. What does he do? First of all, he worships and gives thanks. How often do we forget that, right? When God comes through and he gives us the thing that we've been waiting for, we kind of just put it in the bag and we think, well, God, that was easy for you. Let's move on to the next thing. But no, he worships the Lord. And then he recounts and gives glory to God for the thing. He says, blessed be the Lord who has not left destitute of my master. And then his declaration, and I love it, it is one of my favorite, favorite sentences in the entire Bible. And if you don't have a pen, steal one right now. And underline this in your Bible in some way, but it's the last sentence of verse 27. Notice the declaration of this servant. He says, I, being in the way, the Lord led me. Do you see those words? I, being in the way, the Lord led me. You ask the question and you say, how do things work out for the child of God? Whether it be in you know, seeking a spouse or any other area of life. Establishing a career, moving forward as a family, figuring out what you're to do or what you're to be. How in the world do we get into the middle of God's will? The answer is right here. Be in the way and the Lord will lead you. You say, well, what is the way? Jesus said, I am the way, the truth and the life, right? When we're in Christ and we're walking according to what he says, we're in the way. And the Bible declares to you and I that if we're in the way, then God is going to lead. And he's the author of divine appointments. 
And every step we take, he's arranging things that are going to happen in our future in order for us to find ourselves in the very center of his perfect will. If tonight you're in a place where you feel like you need to be led of the Lord, or you want to get somewhere and you feel like you're not there, the way to get there is to be in the way. Get in the way and God will lead you to whatever it is and however it is. So he says, I being in the way, the Lord led me to the house of my master's brethren. Make sure you're in the way. That's how it's going to work out. Well, it says now in verse 28, and we move quickly because it's just a rehashing of what's already happened. It says that the damsel ran and told them of her mother's house these things. And Rebekah had a brother, and his name was Laban. And Laban ran out unto the man unto the well. And it came to pass, when he saw the earring and the bracelets upon his sister's hands, and when he heard the words of Rebekah his sister, saying, Thus spake the man unto me, that he came unto the man, and behold, he stood by the camels at the well. Now, we're going to see Laban. He'll come back into the story. And Laban is attracted to the gold that he sees now adorned upon Rachel's hands. And that's the type of man that Laban is. Let it be your first clue as we meet him here for the first time. And he said, Come in, thou blessed of the Lord. Wherefore standest thou outside? For I have prepared the house and room for the camels. Come in. And the man came into the house, and he ungirded his camels, and he gave straw and provender for the camels and water to wash his feet and the men's feet that were with him. And there was set meat before him to eat, but he said, I will not eat until I have told mine errand or stated my business. And he said, Speak on. And he said, I am Abraham's servant, and the Lord has blessed my master greatly, and he has become great. And he has given him flocks and herds and silver and gold and men servants and maidservants and camels and asses. And Sarah, my master's wife, bore a son to my master when she was old, and unto him has he given all that he has. And my master made me swear, saying, You shall not take a wife for my son of the daughters of the Canaanites, in whose land I dwell, but you shall go unto my father's house and to my kindred and take a wife for my son." And I said unto my master, Peradventure the woman will not follow me. And he said unto me, The Lord, before whom I walk, will send his angel before you and prosper your way, and you shall take a wife for my son of thy kindred and of thy father's house. Then you shall be clear from this my oath when you come to my kindred, and if they give not thee one, you shall be clear from my oath. And I came this day unto the well and said, O Lord, God of my master Abraham, if now you do prosper my way which I go, behold, I stand by the well of water, and it shall come to pass that when the virgin comes forth to draw water, and I say to her, Give me, I pray thee, a little water of thy pitcher to drink. And she say to me, Both drink thou, and I will also draw for your camels. Let the same be the woman whom the Lord has appointed out for my master's son. And before I had done speaking, watch this, in mine heart. Do you see that? We're told that this prayer that he prayed wasn't even an audible prayer. It was a prayer that was spoken internally. I love the fact that we serve a God who can read thoughts. That we don't have to speak it out in order for him to already know. What did Jesus say? He said, your father already knows the things that you need before you ask him. But yet Jesus still said, ask, didn't he? I'm amazed at our God. He says, Before I was done speaking in my heart, behold, Rebekah came forth with her pitcher on her shoulder, and she went down unto the well and drew water, and I said unto her, Let me drink, I pray thee. 
And she made haste and let down her pitcher from her shoulder and said, Drink, and I will give your camels drink also. So I drank, and she made the camels drink also. And I asked her and said, Whose daughter art thou? And she said, The daughter of Bethuel, Nahor's son, whom Milcah bare unto him. And I put the earring upon her face and the bracelets upon her hands. And I bowed down my head and worshipped the Lord and blessed the Lord God of my master Abraham, which had led me in the right way to take my master's brother's daughter unto his son. He speaks confidently and assuredly concerning the prosperity of his mission. Now, I'm impressed with this servant, not only because he obeyed and went, and not only because he prayed and obeyed God and loved the Lord, but the thing that strikes me in this is how carefully and accurately he reported the step-by-step of what happened when he arrived in their city. You think, well, yeah, well, that's kind of obvious, isn't it? Not really. I mean, a lot of people feel the need to embellish, to negate or to add certain things to make it sound more spiritual or more fitting than it actually is. You never have to do that in the Lord. You never have to make your testimony more glamorous than it actually is. We just tell it like it is. That's all we have to do. And I'm impressed by the servant that he does that. He just lays it out exactly how it went down. And so he asks. He says, and now, verse 49, if you will deal kindly and truly with my master, tell me, and if not, tell me that I may turn to the right hand or to the left. In other words, the ball is now in your court. Will you release Rebekah unto Isaac or not? Then Laban and Bethuel answered and said, The thing proceeds from the Lord. We cannot speak unto you, bad or good. In other words, we bear witness. We agree this thing is from God. There's no way that this could have happened any other way. This is God's revelation on things. And so they conclude and they give their answer after considering. They said, Behold, Rebekah is before you. Take her and go. And let her be your master's son's wife as the Lord had spoken. And so they give their approval. They say, Man, she'll go. Now she's going to have to choose and make up her mind for herself, as we'll see. It says that it came to pass that when Abraham's servant heard their words, he worshipped the Lord, bowing himself to the earth. This is the third time in the passage. And the servant brought forth jewels of gold, or jewels of silver, jewels of gold, and raiment, and gave them to Rebekah, and gave also to her brother and to her mother precious things, so a dowry, showing that he can take care of her. And they did eat and drink, he and the men that were with him, and they tarried all night, and they rose up in the morning, and he said, Send me away unto my master. And her brother and her mother said, Please, let the damsel abide with us a few days. I mean, at least ten. After that, she'll go. I mean, you're all business, Mr. Servant of Abraham. I mean, can't we at least say goodbye? I mean, give us ten days. This is happening so fast. But the servant, being a typical man, said in verse 56, He said unto them, Hinder me not, seeing the Lord has prospered my way, send me away that I may go to my master. Who Look, guys, I'm old, I'm a homebody, please. If you're going to let her go, let her go. And they said, we will call the damsel and inquire at her mouth. And so they called Rebekah and they said unto her, will you go with this man? And she said, I will go. Beautiful. She has the option, the choice in and of herself. She is not a servant uh, of their will, but she is 
uh, given a choice, and she receives it. And it says that they sent away Rebekah, their sister, and her nurse, and Abraham's servant, and his men. And they blessed Rebekah and said unto her, You are our sister. Be thou the mother of thousands of millions. And let thy seed possess the gate of those that hate them. Man, they had no idea how prophetic their prayer would be. And Rebekah arose and her damsels, and they rode upon the camels, and they followed the man. And the servant took Rebekah and went his way. And so the deal is secured. Rebekah is taken. She agrees to go, and they travel back. And now the conclusion and the consummation, verse 62. And it says, And Isaac came from the way of the well, Lahai Roy, dwelling in the south of Canaan. For he dwelt in the south country. And Isaac went out to meditate in the field at the eventide. And he lifted up his eyes and saw, and behold, the camels were coming. And Rebekah lifted up her eyes, and when she saw Isaac, she lighted off the camel. That's the first mention of smoking in the Bible. Just kidding. <laughs> Couldn't resist. Unfiltered. I'm talking about me, not, not the... <laughs> for, for she had said unto the servant... That only works in the King James. That's the, that's the sole reason why I use the King James. Right there. <laughs> for she said unto the servant, What man is this? that walks in the field to meet us. Isn't that remarkable that she's impressed? As soon as she, I mean, how many people did they see along the way? And yet this one, she remarks concerning, who in the world is that? And the servant had said, it is my master. Therefore she took a veil and she covered herself. And the servant told Isaac all things that he had done. And Isaac brought her into his mother Sarah's tent and took Rebekah, and she became his wife, and he loved her. And Isaac was comforted after his mother's death. And so they meet, the marriage is consummated, and it tells us that he loved her. It's this, only the second time in the Bible now that this word love has been used. The first time concerning Abraham's love for Isaac, and now the second time concerning Isaac's love for his bride. Now, in this, and I, and I hasten to this part because I want to um, squeeze this in, and we are almost finished. I know we're almost out of time. But I want you to see the prophetic shadow that is uh, kind of pictured in this whole, um, this whole love story that has taken place now in the gathering of this bride for the son Isaac. What we've seen in chapter 22 was a picture of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And I won't uh, rehash that, but uh, you know, that's what was pictured there in the offering of Isaac and him not dying. But then in chapter 23, our study last week, we saw the, the bride of Abraham, Sarah, who represented the nation of Israel, being put away into her tomb. And again, a prophetic overlay of what would take place after the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, that Israel, the wife of Jehovah, would be separated from her man and put into a tomb in a deeded land until the time of the end. And now in chapter 24, we see the gathering of the bride for the son. And here's why this is so remarkable. Because when we read the New Testament, what we see of Jesus is that he is constantly referring to himself as the bridegroom. And the church is consistently pictured or portrayed as the bride, the one that he would marry. 
When John the Baptist was asked about who Jesus was and his role, he called himself the friend of the bridegroom. But he called himself inferior, pointing to the bridegroom, Jesus, as the one who was superior to him. Jesus, in Matthew chapter 9, would testify of himself, and he would say that while the bridegroom is with the bridal party, they all rejoice. But when he's removed from them, they will mourn. Jesus uh, um, referencing of himself that he is the bridegroom. In Matthew chapter 25, when the Bible talks about the second coming of Jesus Christ, Jesus likens himself unto the bridegroom, which will then come and take his bride to the place that he's then prepared for her. And so Jesus, again, being the bridegroom. Ephesians chapter 5, the Apostle Paul says that Jesus Christ is the bridegroom and that the church is the bride and that our salvation is a picture of marriage as we are married, linked with, unified with Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And again, and we see in Revelation 19 when... Uh, when all things are done and the consummation happens, that the bride descends adorned and prepared for the bridegroom, a picture again of the church. And so we have this glorious picture in the New Testament of the church being the bride of the Son. And so what we have is we have an unnamed servant who's tasked with gathering a bride for the Son. And so, as it is in New Testament theology... We have the Holy Spirit, a servant, he's called the helper, who has no name other than that of the Holy Spirit, and his job is to knock on hearts and to ask those that would open to be linked with and married to the Son of God, a spirit in the world today, seeking out those that would be the bride of the Son. We see in the passage that the Son emphatically is not to go and show himself there but that her agreement to marry must be done by faith and not by sight. And so it is with you and I. We love him, Jesus, whom we have not seen. As it says in the New Testament, having not seen him, yet you love him and rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory. We see in the passage that she has to choose, even though she hasn't seen him, and we see that she's drawn by his kindness. He gives her a nose ring and bracelets and shows that he's able to provide for her. We see in the passage that it's an unexpected interruption in Rebecca's life. She had no idea that that day, just going to the well, that there she would encounter something that would change her life forever. She was interrupted, just like you and I. When the Spirit knocks on our heart and says, Hey, would you come to Jesus Christ? Would you give your life to him? Often it's an interruption. It, it, it meets us, it catches us off guard. And it's a total change of life. We see also in the passage that she must choose to go, just as we are given the choice of whether or not we'll respond to the invitation. And amazingly, her choice, Rebecca's, involves the leaving of all that she has in order to go. And that's the same thing for you and I. When we give our lives to Jesus Christ, we leave all behind. The world is behind us, and we take up our cross daily and follow Him. We see in the passage that upon acceptance of the invitation, that she's given gifts by the unnamed servant. He gives her precious things, gold and jewels of silver and things to her brother and to her parents. So also with you and I, when we say yes to Christ, I'll go. I haven't seen him yet. I'll go. I'll be the bride of Christ. The Bible says that the Spirit gives us gifts. They're gifts of the Spirit, things that he gives to us in order to enrich us for our journey. We see also in the passage 
that she has a long and dangerous journey in front of her as she goes and prepares to meet with her bridegroom. So it is with you and I. We agree. We get on the camel, and boy, sometimes this life is a bumpy ride, isn't it? And we have a long way to go, and there's fear, there's trepidation, but yet we have a faithful guide, even as she did. She had a guide that would bring her right where she needed to go. He was the faithful guide. We also see in the passage that she is veiled from seeing him until the time of the consummation. And so also with you and I. We see Him with the eyes of our heart. We perceive Him and know His presence, but we don't see Him physically. We're veiled from His presence until the time when He pierces through the veil and He calls us home and we see Him face to face as the marriage is consummated in His presence. We see in the passage that she meets Him in the field and then He brings her across the threshold. And just as for you and I, when we finally do see Jesus, the Bible says that He will descend into our field. The field in the Bible is the world. And that we will meet the Lord in the air, and then He will take us and we will ever be with the Lord. And then we see finally in the passage that He loved her. And what we know of our Savior is that the love that He has for us is not a love that comes by trial, a love that comes as we meet His expectations, Not a love that comes by training like they would do in the harems of those days. Like, well, after they get her hair right and she learns this language and learns our culture, then I'll love her. But it says that he loved her immediately and unconditionally. What an amazing picture of the love that Jesus Christ has for you and I. And the love of the Father that he would reach into our world, sending his servant to span the distance of time and eternity to knock on human hearts and to bid us to come to Jesus Christ. What an amazing thing. And that we have the opportunity to respond to Him. And to look at our life around us and say, yeah, this is good. My family, it's all good. But to be the bride of Christ, what an amazing prospect. The musicians can come, and as they do, I just put before you, what was the outcome of Rebecca's decision? Rebecca's choice to say yes to the Son. What came of Rebecca's life? Well, first of all, she instantly becomes a pillar in the biggest thing that will ever be. I mean, she becomes the wife of Isaac and the mother of Jacob. This is huge. She becomes one of the biggest historical figures, both in the context of earth and heaven, that ever will be. She's bigger than Joan of Arc, bigger than Marie Antoinette, bigger than Beyonce or Madonna, you know? This is huge. What she automatically becomes just in saying yes, and she doesn't even realize what it is. She also instantly became wealthy beyond imagination. Even though she had only a foreshadowing of it, just a taste of it while she was on her journey, she had no idea of the prosperity that laid before her in her future and the prominence of what she would become. She was also instantly loved unconditionally, unevaluated, unscreened, not manipulated or changed, but loved for who she was automatically as soon as she came face to face with this son. What did she do? She chose. She simply responded. And so it is, if you're here tonight and you've been born again, you've made the same decision that Rebecca made. You've said yes to the Son of God, to Jesus Christ. You've opened the door of your heart and said, okay, I agree, I believe. I have not seen, and yet I love. And I'm willing to go. And for the prize of eternity, willing to lay down all of earth's goods 
and to allow His servant, His Spirit, to be the governor and the guide and the one that would faithfully bring us to Jesus Christ. And if you're here tonight, and perhaps you've never said yes to that servant, perhaps tonight is the night that you came to a well with your pitcher of water, perhaps to try to draw, perhaps to gather a drink. And what I'm here to share with you tonight, person who does not yet know this loving Savior, this gracious God, is that He has a future and a hope for you. He wants you to be the wife of His very Son. And He invites you into a relationship where you will be loved unconditionally, led through this life, provided for, and with a future of unimaginable wealth. But the ball is in your court. Let's ask the damsel, will you go with this man? And as his spirit hovers, he knocks on every heart. And he says, whoever will open, I will come in and sup with him and he with me. And the future of eternity awaits. And I would encourage you tonight, if you don't yet know Jesus Christ, I want to introduce you to a man who loves you beyond any love that you could ever know in the human realm. He is for you and not against you. He laid down his life to forgive you of your sins, to make you pure, to make you whole, and to make you what only He can make you. And He desires to do that for you. I encourage you tonight, if you haven't yet, to open your heart to Jesus Christ and let Him in and let Him save you. Father, we thank you for this amazing picture, this amazing passage. And as we close out this long study and this long chapter, we're thankful, Lord, for the way it so carefully depicts the choice that's laid out before us. And so, Lord, we love you tonight. We thank you, Lord, for your grace. We thank you for your power. We thank you for your purpose. We thank you for your ability. We thank you for your Holy Spirit who's willing to do the hard work of convincing, of preparing, of watching, of knocking, and asking, and of bringing. And I pray tonight, Lord, for anyone here that doesn't yet know you personally, that Holy Spirit, you would be the great drawer to Jesus Christ. Maybe you're here tonight and you don't yet know Christ, but you want to say yes to the greater than Isaac and respond to the Son of God and say, I will go with this man. And if that's you here tonight, I just ask you in the simplicity of where you're sitting just to raise up your hand and say, I want to say yes. I want to say yes to Jesus Christ. I will go with this man. Just lift your hand up and say, yes, Lord, I agree. I'm willing. I'm wanting. Father, you see every heart. And I'm so grateful, Lord, for the way that you call, the way that you choose, the way that you move. Encourage us tonight, Lord, in your love and in your truth. We thank you for this time together. And we ask that you bless us as we go. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen stand together.